Well, good morning. My name is Kate. For those of you who are new at our church or haven't been for a little while, I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Um, I'm a mom of four, so that probably lets you know I don't get out a lot, right? Like, I don't leave my house very often. Uh, Last night, though, my husband and I, our kids go to a really awesome Christian school in the area, and they had, like, a gala last night. And so it was probably the first, like, I actually got dressed up, you know, put makeup on, did my hair. And my five-year-old was like, you look different. <laughs> I go, thank you. That, thank you so much. A good, good different? You're wearing a dress. <laughs> What's up with you? I go, daddy and I are going on a date. And here was his response. What's a date? And I thought, oh, we don't do this enough. <laughs> we, we date, you know, we have four of you. We, you, we, we really like each other. But the more you have, the less babysitters you can find to come and hang out. But fortunately, we have parents who are very nice and come over, and they had a blast. But it was just, I thought, so funny because it's true. I don't get a lot of time alone or time with my husband. But this right here is one of my favorite things in my life that I get to do, is come up here and preach the good news and speak life to all of you. So thank you for coming to church. Thank you for showing up this morning. I know it's sometimes not a small feet getting here and putting aside everything else that's busy in your life. It was a lot of work this morning for me to get here. JJ leaves our house, I think, well, I don't even know, 4, 4.30? I'm asleep. So getting four children ready all by myself while trying to be like, what? What am I preaching on? Yeah, yeah, okay, I got it. I got it. So I applaud all of you as well for being here. You look good. Tell the person next to you, you look good. Yes. Don't say you look weird or you look different. You look good. <laughs> he needs to learn with the ladies if he wants one. Telling her you look, you look different, not, not the best. <laughs> Even your mom. Um, we are currently in a series right now. It's the conclusion today, and it's what if. And we took this whole approach on what if all these things that happened leading up to the crucifixion or during the crucifixion, what if they didn't happen? What if Jesus would have said no? What if Jesus didn't die on the cross? What if he didn't raise from the dead, right? And where would we all be? And today we want to take it, I want to I really uncover the idea, I want to include us in it. I want to include the disciples in it. It's what if they didn't go? Right? Because this big, beautiful love story that unfolded for what Jesus did for us was incredible. But what if the disciples, after he ascended to heaven, what if they didn't go? I don't think we'd be sitting here, right? You know, Daniel brought up a great point at teaching team. There probably would be no America. The gospel is what spread and what began this beautiful country that we live in. And if they didn't go we wouldn't be here. I think we so often skip over that, that there was this partnership that Jesus entrusted. I mean, what an important thing that he entrusted to them, the full faith of, I know you got this. He was willing to leave because he had the faith, I know you have this. I know you can do it. I know the road is hard ahead. I know that there's suffering. I know that you will endure hardships on my behalf, but you can do it. You can do it. And the glory that they now get to live in for eternity, right? Their mindset was able to see past here and now, and it was able to look onto then and there. 
And I want to begin to shift our perspective to that as well. But I need to take a step back. It says in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, this is the last thing that Jesus tells his disciples. It's the last encounter that they're having in this very important calling, the commissioning, right? We call this right here the great commissioning. And it says this, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I love the Bible because it adds in the humanness to all of us, right? Maybe you showed up this morning and you're worshipping, but there's also this doubt. There's this fighting inside of you. Well, I believe it, but do I fully believe it? And I think you can rest assured you're in good company because here the disciples are in front of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And yet even some of them doubted standing before him. It's inside of us. It's that human nature to lean into doubt. But then this Jesus says to them, right, even those who are doubting, he goes, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, right? He's saying, it's been given to me, so now I'm calling you. You've spent the last three years with me. You've done the work with me. You've watched me. I've been your teacher. You've been the student. Now I'm pushing you out of the nest. And he says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then this, right? The, the thing that we have to hold on to. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always. I'm with you when it's good and I'm with you when it's hard and I'm with you when you're scared and when you doubt. I am with you always. But go. And I think the thing that we need to recognize is this wasn't just for the disciples. Because here's the thing. Yes, the disciples were called and yes, they were commissioned. But if the next generation didn't pick up their torch and continue to run that race and continue to spread the gospel and to continue to go forth, it would have died out. We are always in that race and we were always the next generation. There's always a next generation to pick up that torch. And what if they say no? Right? But I think the thing that we have to recognize is, as I was studying this and as I was going through this, the funny thing is, the disciples initially did say no. They did. See, because Jesus, he dies, and then not one of them is left. They kind of all scatter and go back to the thing that they've known. You know, they're waiting for him and there's disappointment. Even though he prepares them, he says, hey, I'm coming back. They, they, it, it was as if they had blinders on their eyes. And so instead of going forth and continuing to do the ministry, they go back to the thing. Those who were fishermen go back to fishing, right? Where does Jesus find them? In the boat fishing. And I think that's us, right? Maybe you've been called. Maybe God has set you apart. Maybe he's given you this word on your life. Maybe there's a direct purpose and maybe you're not living it right now. Maybe you're going through the motions, but you're not living out the thing God has called you to do. And that doesn't mean you're all supposed to be pastors and up here teaching, 
But we all have a call to spread the good news. The gospel is for all of us. If you have tasted and seen, then your responsibility is to invite as many people into that dinner banquet as possible. But I think we can have hope and I think we can know we're in good company because the disciples also didn't go at first. And these are the guys who spent all this time with Jesus. All this, you know, it's it's amazing to me. And, And I think, how did they so quickly abandon him? How did they so quickly, none of them are at the grave waiting for him. He, in fact, continually seeks them out. Continually goes and finds them. And I think there's different reasons for different ones of them. And and there's three stories that I really want to break down today. That I think we can find ourselves so often in. But there's a few thoughts, right? They didn't go immediately. They all needed a second chance. They all needed a second chance. None of them did that perfect. None of them did it the way they were supposed to do it. Even those who were absolutely closest to him. But then this, Jesus is their great redeemer and he's our great redeemer. And no matter how many times you've messed up, no matter how many times you've fallen short, no matter where you're at sitting in this room, no matter how loud the call was and how hard you ran, he is your great redeemer. He is your great redeemer. He makes all things new. And it's never too late. And maybe this makes you uncomfortable, right? You know, like you know inside and you're just like, ah. But let me encourage you because I think we can see in these three stories, maybe you find yourself there and maybe God can do the ministry for you that he did for these men. So the first one, three men and three stories. The first one is Thomas the doubter. Thomas didn't go. He didn't start his call. He didn't continue to walk because Thomas was full of his own doubt. The name sticks, right? I mean, that's often what we refer to him as, is Thomas the Doubter. John 20, 24 through 25, it says, One of the twelve, Thomas called the twin, was not with them when Yeshua came. How mad are you if you're Thomas, right? <laughs> like, they're all together. And it's probably he was the guy that they were like, you know, we want takeout tonight. It's your turn, Thomas. It's your turn to go get in and out. Please, can you go? And he's like, fine. Thomas probably was always like, he was probably the one who just got the short end of the deal, you know? Like, you have that group of friends and you always just like deflect, like, you go do it. Come on, you go do it. It's like the one you can push around. And this is probably Thomas. And he's not there when Jesus shows up. If that was me, I'd be so frustrated. Like, what? Are you kidding me? It's like, he's the original FOMO. And for those over 40, fear of missing out, okay? Fear of missing out. He's the guy. The Bible started FOMO. It's right here with Thomas. He's the original one. He's like, dang it. And that's maybe the worst of it all. You miss Jesus coming back. You miss seeing him face to face. The other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. Great, guys. That's awesome. You know, he's like trying to be so happy. But here's his actual reply. Unless I see the nail prints in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails 
and put my hand in his side, I will not even kind of believe, I will never believe. You know what's interesting? Thomas was there when he did all these great miracles. Thomas is there the night that he's betrayed. Thomas is there breaking bread with him. Thomas is there when Jesus repeatedly prophesies what's going to happen and what's going to unfold. And the disciples that he has spent the last three years of his life with, he is there with them and they're telling him, no, this happened. And he's like, no. You know, it's like in Chronicles of Narnia, right? where Lucy goes into Narnia. And her siblings, even knowing her character, even knowing who she is, they choose to believe in Edwin. And the professor asks the two older ones, well, whose character is more trustworthy? But because she's saying the impossible, it's like that's, it's just too far out of reach. And this is Thomas. I think this is where we find ourselves in our Christian faith a lot too, right? I was thinking specifically the American church finds herself in this place as a collective. Like, to be real, to be vulnerable, I hear these stories that happen in Africa, right? These healings and these resurrections and all these things that happen in the Bible. And for me, the Bible, it's like, yeah, I believe it. No problem. But then I hear about it happening today. And because I haven't seen it with my own eyes, my doubt comes in and it floods me. And I go, well, I need to see a video of it. And even at that, then I'm like, they probably use Photoshop. (laughs) You laugh because you've done it too, right? You've been in that place. And I think this is part of what has stifled the church and stifled miracles and stifled the things is this idea of doubt In fact, it holds us back so often from even praying the prayers of impossible. Well, it's not really going to happen, so why pray it? We're a doubting church. And I don't mean that jubilee. I mean the church. I mean the American church. We doubt so quickly. We fall away so quickly. We begin to feel those earth pains. And the Bible tells us this, right? Jesus prophesies this, that those will fall away. But what is it that causes us to fall away, to stumble, to trip? Isn't it doubt? If you are not set on your firm foundation, if you are not, because here's the thing, we we didn't get the benefit of watching Jesus raised from the dead. All of us are sitting here in this room, and it only is by faith that you're sitting in this room. It is only by faith that we believe in what the Bible tells us, that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. There's no video. (laughs) I'd like that, you know, really easy to pop that in, be like, watch this. (laughs) But even then, even some of the disciples doubted, right? They're on the, the mount, they're in Galilee, and even they doubt. It's so easy. And it is part of human nature to doubt. But God calls us to a higher standard. That is not faith. Faith is not what you see. Faith is not what you feel and what you can touch and what you can put your hands on. Faith is believing in the impossible. I have a son, and I've talked about him a little bit. All my kids, I, in fact, I ask my children all the time, hey, will you pray for me? Because there's this faith in them. But one of them specifically, like, just has a call. He got to come up here and pray a few weeks ago. 
He prayed for the poor, which I thought was, he really mixed it up for second service. And I was like, you changed your prayer. He goes, yeah, I was feeling it. I'm like, all right, bro. <laughs> which is totally Ezra. But he, he is so full of faith in what he prays. And to him, he's explained it to me that when he prays, it's as good as done. Like, Jesus has already done it. So, like, he prays for everything, church. He prays for everything. I mean, he prays for, like, cut paper cuts. Because his faith is so full and so believing that Jesus can do anything that he's like, why wouldn't God heal my paper cut? But we don't think like that, right? It's just like, oh, that would be too hard, or God's too busy, or, or we have doubt. Maybe we come in with disappointment. And... Look, my, my son has seen, like, it hasn't always, you know, his paper cut hasn't miraculously healed up. But it's never stopped him from believing that God couldn't do that. He goes around all the time. I'm telling you, just watch out. You got a Band-Aid on somewhere, he's going to pray for you. Like, he, <laughs> we've had to kind of coach him, like, hey, like, when Ivy has fallen down at the mall and is throwing a temper tantrum and is in the middle of the thing, like, probably not the best time to pray really loudly and draw even more attention to our family. Like, we can hold off. You can pray in the car. Like, it's we just, you know. And he always, without fail, he's going to pick the most introverted person who's, like, never heard the gospel, who's like, I just want to hide. The awkward teenager who works at Michael's, like, that's the person he's going after. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. I'm in the corner. I'm, like, over here. I'm like, is he going to be a kid? Anybody? Got, oh, yeah, he's mine. forgot. He is just so unashamed of the faith that he has. And it has challenged me. Because I used, I like, it embarrasses me sometimes, right? That faith to just go up and to just believe, hey, let me pray for you in the wheelchair. Because I'm like, oh, I don't want to offend. And he's more concerned. He's like, who cares about offense? I want to see someone walk. That's the church, right? Jesus offended everywhere he went. Amen. He did. He offended everywhere. He was, he was kind and he was good, but he was offensive. And we have, we have lost that in our current American culture. We think we're being a bad Christian by offending those around us. Jesus offended people, church. He upset a lot of religious people. He did a lot of things that they thought were wrong. He would have prayed for people for the impossible. He did. And the way he healed was not a convenient way often, right? Like, let me spit in my hands, pick up some dirt, and rub it on your eyes. The disciples are like, ah, oh, Jesus, he couldn't have done that any other way. Any other way. These are, what, these are the things you want us to do, yeah. These are the things I'm calling you to do. Let us stop doubting what God can do. Let us stop doubting what God can do. Because our faith is not built upon what we can see. Your faith has to be bigger than that. But here's what I love about Thomas. Jesus comes back for him. 
He calls the doubter too. Because maybe someone who struggled with doubt can speak to someone struggling with doubt. Matthew 20, 26 through 29, we pick up this story. Eight days later, the disciples were again inside. How many times do you think the disciples brought up to Thomas in between them? Like, oh, remember when Jesus came here? Remember when he was with us? Like, yeah, yeah, I don't remember. I wasn't here. (laughs) But this time, Thomas was with them. He probably was like, I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. You guys can get your food. I will starve to death. Like, I'm staying here. And Yeshua comes despite the locked doors. I love that the Bible points out to us like, whoa, the doors are locked and Jesus comes in, right? Like it's not the fact that he just raised from the dead. It's not the fact that he's king of kings. He's like God himself. No, it's that the doors were locked and God was able to get in. Like that's the amazing part of the story. And he stood in their midst and said, Shalom Alekim. Then he said to Thomas, he knows right where Thomas is at. He knows right where your doubt is at. And the amazing thing about Jesus is he's so faithful to meet you in your doubt. To meet you in the place that you are. He says, put your finger here. And look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop. Stop what? Stop doubting. That's his call to you today. Stop doubting. He's spoken the promise. This is for someone right now. I didn't plan on spending this much time in this point, but I really believe this is for someone. Stop doubting. You know, God... God loves to give promises because I think it often before it happens because it builds our faith. But getting from the promise to the fulfillment often takes time. It often takes a hard journey. It takes perseverance on our part. But it's that gentle reminder I'm with you in this, but you got to stop doubting. It's not bringing you any life. It's bringing you death. Stop doubting. Stop doubting his goodness. Maybe you're in a hard place. Maybe you've been in a hard place. Maybe it's been a struggle day after day after day. And maybe it's like, Are you really who you say you are? I've been there. I know that feeling. We've all been there, right? It's a human nature. Again, I go back to Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. And even in that moment, there are those who doubt. It is part of who we are to doubt. But the reminder this morning, stop doubting. Hold fast to what he tells you. Hold fast to the promise, because when he says it, be my son who just believes it. That even if you don't do it today, I know you can. I know you will. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. 
And Yeshua said to him, I chose this, this um, translation because often it's read like a sentence, a statement. But in this translation, it's a question. Because you have seen me, you have believed? Right? I mean, at any point in this interaction between Thomas and him, he could have stopped and said, I got it. I don't need any more proof. Jesus could have walked in the room and been like, no, you are the Lord. I've seen enough to last me a lifetime. But there's something inside of him. And Jesus is so kind and so gentle. And and it's this like gentle nudge like, Thomas, come on. You don't need this. Just believe. And we're left with this. Maybe one of the most powerful verses that we have in the Bible because you have seen me, you have believed. And he says this to us. Blessed are the ones who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are you in this room who has not seen and yet you believe. You believe in what he can do. You believe in what he can do in you and through you and with you. You believe You have faith that he can do the impossible. You have faith that he can use you. And maybe everyone else around you looks at you. And maybe you've been told your entire life that you weren't going to amount to very much. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Because if Jesus calls you like he so often called all the unqualified, why do you think he did that? He could have used anybody. He did it to remind you he can use you too. He can use you too. He can use you in your family's life. He can use you in your neighbor's life. He can use you at work. And don't you dare for a second think you have the cop out that you're not good at speaking or you don't know very much about the Bible. Because here's the thing. I listened to this message from my brother-in-law this past week and he said something so brilliant. Your responsibility isn't in life to understand God. It's to know him. And that is what we carry for. That's the gospel message. It's about knowing him. And we're so timid to step out because we think, well, I don't understand all that's in the Bible. And I don't understand the transfiguration. And I don't understand how there's three in one. I don't understand all those things. Maybe that's not your responsibility. It's the responsibility of you to know your father. And the more you know him, the more he gives. Run after him. Go after him. Stop doubting. The second story is Peter the Ashamed. To Peter, right? Love Peter. I spoke on him a couple months ago. Peter is wild and brazen and brash and just says things. He honestly probably says things we all think. He's just as willing. He's like that guy, right? Willing to say the thing. You're like, "Mm mm-mm, shouldn't have said that. You know, the disciples are like all standing behind him like, yeah, mm -mm, mm mm-mm. Like they're like looking at Jesus like, this guy. But like behind closed doors like, yeah, I totally feel that way, you know. But Peter says it. He's the guy who walks on water, though. He's the guy who Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the son of God. To where else will we go but to you? Like there's a part of Peter that gets it. And there's this part of Peter that just fails so miserably. 
And probably his epic fail, right, is the night that Jesus is taken into the hands of his betrayers, you know, the night he's arrested. And they're having communion, and, and Jesus tells him, you know, Peter goes, I will never forsake you. Jesus goes, you will. In fact, you won't just do it once. You'll do it three times. And that's just mind-boggling to Peter. I think sometimes those nevers and always are pretty silly to say. Because <clears throat> you just don't know. You don't know the pressure that he faced and the place he was in and the fear. You know, here's, here's he, what he thought. This guy's going to come in. This is the king of kings, and he's going to save all of us. And yet, what's happening right now? What's going on right now? And that fear begins to creep in. You ever been afraid? And so he does. He totally deserts Jesus. And you got to feel for him, right? The guy has done the thing that Jesus says you'll do. And he's like, no, no, no. And he does. And I just can't imagine the shame that he had to have felt in that moment in the days after. I think for him, I think Thomas, his was, I, I have doubt and it's, it makes me pause. I don't think Peter's was doubt. I think Peter was ashamed. I'm too unworthy to preach this news. I've messed up too many times and this one I can't undo. This sin's too big. What I've done, Jesus would never want anything to do with me. And even if he does raise from the dead, that's not me he wants to see. And yet Jesus finds Peter, right? When, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I think that first one, how we know, right? Jesus asks this three times, and I've seen it's, it can be a representation of the three times that Peter denied him. But I also think we miss a lot of um, tone. It's like when you text. And for some reason, when I text my mom or my mother-in-law, I always think they're upset at me because we, like, miss, you know, like, I have emojis, exclamation marks and everything I put, right? I want you to know I'm happy when I'm texting you. But, like, there's, like, a, a gap of age, okay? And, like, you just, like, it's the period. You put a period in your text, I think you're mad at me. I'm going to call you up and be like, what happened here? I, my mom and I do this all the time. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm, we're good. I'm like, you sounded mad in your text. <laughs> No, it's just hard for me to text or text her like one word is like, it's like this big on her screen. I'm like, mom. So I get it. Okay. But I think sometimes when we read scripture, the tone of what's being said is lost on us. And I was thinking about this after you fight with a spouse, right? So sometimes, for some reason, isn't the hardest thing to say after a fight is like that vulnerability? Like when you feel ashamed, when you feel like you've been wronged, isn't it hard sometimes to be like, I love you? 
and to receive that love back because it's just like shame has flooded you and condemnation and you're like, I'm undeserving of this. Right? It feels kind of awkward. And so Jesus goes, do you love me more than these? Because what does Peter say the night? He goes, I love you more than all of these. I will not. And maybe Jesus is reminding him, it's okay that you're human, Peter. It's okay that you messed up. I know. I know what happened. I know what you did. It's okay. And maybe his response isn't, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Maybe it's more, yeah, Lord, you know that I love you. Right? Couldn't it have been that? But Jesus knows the call on Peter's life, and that's not good enough. He needs to fully restore him in this moment. He needs to fully grab hold of his heart and not just for, Jesus is like, hey, I've already forgiven you. I've dealt with this, but you're holding on to your sin and you need to let it go and lay it down right now. Because shame and guilt are are chains, are weights that hold you back from running faster. And God doesn't want you running in shame and running in, it's like carrying a backpack full of bricks. That's not, you're never going to be effective. He says, lay it down. Lay it down. Pick up what I have for you. I've forgiven you. I don't see it anymore. You've repented. Move on. You mess up again. Ask for forgiveness and take another step forward. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Let's change this time. Not more than these. Simon, do you love me? And he said to him, yeah. I mean, this is probably a really awkward moment. All these other guys are standing in front of him. And actually in different translations, Jesus is asking him, do you love me agape? Do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me to the ends of the earth? And Peter replies back and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he, he changes it a little bit. And we miss it because love in, in, a, in our English language is love, right? It's just like, I love my phone. I love this show. I love my husband. We don't have this like variation in levels. But in the Greek, there's all sorts of different forms of love. And so Jesus is asking a specific form. And Peter keeps responding back in, I love you like a brother. Like, I, I love you. But that unconditional, oh God, I feel too ashamed. I don't know if I do. Look at what I did. Look at what I did. Do you think I love you like that? But he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says it again, tend my sheep. Jesus says a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus changed it for that, right? He actually, in different versions, he changes it and he meets Peter with where he's at in his level. All right, Peter, do you love me in the way you're talking about? He's so patient with us. He's so good and gentle to restore us and meet us where we're at. It says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. And maybe he's looking for the answer. Do I? I don't know. Maybe you know something I don't because you keep asking me this and I keep trying to answer it. But maybe I'm just too far gone. 
But then I think he gets desperate right here. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. It's like the shame each time is broken off a little bit more. Yeah, I I love you, Jesus. Okay, I love you, Jesus. I love you. I'm sorry for what I did, but I love you. I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. It's this incredible moment of restoration. He tells Peter, you do love me. You love me so much, you're going to die for me. Can you imagine that? Like, what a scary moment, right? Peter has this recognition, and yet, gosh, I think he had to have recognized. God, you've restored me, and you really believe I would love you that much. You have to love someone an awful lot, not like a brother. That unconditional, I would go to the ends of, there are only five people in my life that I would do that for. And no one else in this life is worth it to me to do that. And Jesus is saying, you love me like that. So go, follow me, run after me. He didn't disqualify Peter. He called him back. And then the last one, the last story is Judas the betrayer. We don't like to talk about Judas very much in church, do we? It's one of those messages that's hard. We don't know what to do with it. But you know what? Judas was also called by Jesus. He was. He was one of the 12. And even on the night that he's about to betray him, you know, the hyssop that he hands him. We were talking about this, and my dad said in teaching team, it was actually an olive branch to him. Like, the representation of what he was handing, Jesus was handing to Judas, was, hey, come on. I know what you're about to do, but this right here between us, in Jewish culture, it was a representation, it doesn't matter what's in the past. We're good. You and me are good. So don't do the thing I know you're about to do. But we know, right? Judas does it. And we skip over, I think, Matthew 27, 3 through 5. I hadn't picked up on this, but this is, this is important to recognize because I think there's people who feel this way. It says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with... He didn't go and celebrate the thing. He felt instantly remorseful for what he had done. Now, that's different than Conviction. Then repentance, he felt remorse, he felt bad. But what does he do? So he takes the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, he declared. Like he recognizes what he has done is wrong, but he doesn't, that's different. Recognizing what you have done is very, very different than repenting for what you have done. My two-year-old all the time feels bad for what she has done because She's mad that now the thing she wants is taken away from her. That doesn't mean she's repentant. And honestly, she's a two-year-old right now. And she's sweet. 
she's feisty. Watch out for her. In fact, I think world watch out for her because she has important things in the kingdom and no one's going to be able to sway that little one. But you know, she feels bad a lot. But I think it's important. Like I have seen in true human nature, she is all of us. Like so often it's easier to feel bad for something and be like, oh, I'm sorry. And you do. Like I totally believe we can feel bad. We can feel sorry for what we've done. That's not repentance. And here's why you know it's not repentance, right? He goes to the elders, the leading priests, and says, I have sinned for I have betrayed an innocent man. And you know what they tell him? What do we care? That's your problem. Then Judas threw the silver pieces down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. This week when I was studying, I was thinking about it like this. Judas goes to religion to set him free. He didn't go to Jesus to set him free. And you know what? Religion and the law doesn't care whether or not you've sinned. You've already done it. What do we care? You're a sinner. We look, you're out. Get away from us. And a lot of times, we spend our lives running to religion and running to the law instead of running to Jesus. And I just think, Jesus is on the cross, so, and there are people watching him, right? Hanging on the cross. <laughs> what if Judas could have recognized? Like if he could forgive me and he could forgive the two dying on the cross with him and he could forgive all the other people who have gone before us, right? All of us. We are all fallen short. We all fall short of the glory of God and we all needed a savior as much as Judas needed a savior. What if he could have gotten it and realized he's the only one that can set me free? He's the only one and he does want to forgive me and he doesn't. I know that speculation, right? Like Judas fulfilled what he was supposed to do, but what if he could have fulfilled it and then gone and run and said, I'm so sorry, please forgive me for what I've done. Do you do not think that there's a chance that Jesus would have said, I see you and I forgive you. It was Judas who got in the way of Judas. It was Judas who got in the way of Judas. He decided, I, I, nothing's going to make this right. And I, I, I'm too unworthy to be forgiven. And maybe that's you. You feel like you're too unworthy to be forgiven. But maybe you're running to the wrong things to forgive you. Maybe you're sitting here today and you feel worn out by religion and you feel worn out by Christianity because you're following and running after the law and that's not why he died for you. He died to have relationship with you. He died to set you free. He died for freedom. It is for freedom, right? He wants a free bride. He wants an excited bride. He doesn't want a worn out, tired of working for his approval kind of family. So this is, this is 
my way, I think, to break it down in simple terms. I, when, we, when JJ and I first got married, I was eating Skittles, which I don't eat sugar now, but I was eating a lot of Skittles right when we got married. Like, I just was cruising. I was living that, like, first married life, you know? Like, we are just having fun. So you up late. It's before children. You're, like, up at 3 a.m. You sleep till, like, 10. Like, there are no rules. It's just fun. And I was eating Skittles one day, and I, like, popped out a filling. I've never had Skittles since. If that can do that to your teeth, it just, uh, no thank you. But <laughs> we didn't have a lot of money. And I have a deep fear of the dentist. <laughs> like, I'm sorry if you're a dentist. I'm sure you're a very nice person. I just don't want to see you in the office. I, it's, <laughs> like, my anxiety goes up to here. I make JJ go to the dentist with me anytime. I don't know why. I just, they're just in your mouth, and there's just, like, the, pl- oh, I just don't like it. So I wait a few days, and I have this horrible <laughs> tooth pain. And I have to take Advil for it. And this is like, you know how they say, like, youth is wasted on the young? The youth is wasted on the young. Instead of going to the dentist, I just took Advil for a year. <laughs> I know. I don't even take medicine now. Like, I, I, like, eat healthy. I exercise every day. Like, my kids eat like this. Like, I don't know. Being 21, you're just stupid. <laughs> like... If you are 21, you are not stupid. I was stupid at 21. But at 30, you might also feel that way about yourself. It's okay. It's okay. That's what age does to us. But I spend, so like a few weeks go by, and it's still hurting, and it's like, ha, ha, ha. But then like a couple of months go by, and I'm like, now at the point that it's been so long, I'm ashamed to go to the dentist, because if I go to the dentist, they're going to be like, why didn't you come to the dentist? And I'm going to be embarrassed because I didn't go to the dentist, and it's just getting worse. Have you been there, right? This, like, cycle that you, like, you just put something off. Like, this little thing grows into a bigger thing. And it only makes you run further and further away from the thing that could actually fix the problem. So I spent a year doing this. Like my tooth would hurt all the time, unless I took Advil and then the swelling would go down and I'm like, I don't have an issue. No, I was just masking the issue. I wasn't fixing the issue. It was always there. I avoided the issue. So finally, it actually gets so bad that Advil's like starting not to work. I'm trying those like over-the-counter medicines to like, not, like nothing's working, like I'm, it, it's bad. So I have to, like, make an appointment at the dentist. And in my head, I have built this up to, like, they're going to shame me. They're going to laugh at me. They're going to call all the nurses in to, like, look at me and be like, do you see? This is the worst tooth we've ever seen. Like, I'm just ready for just, you know, the barrage of terror that they're going to, like, I know that dentists aren't like this, okay? I know that. But in my head, that's just the picture I had created. And I go to the dentist. I have to do all this research. I find the nicest. I'm like typing in nice dentist. (laughs) Raise your hand if you've typed in nice dentist on Google. Yeah. I'm going to pretend like you're just embarrassed that I'm not the only one. Okay. My dad has also typed in nice dentist. (laughs) Um, And I go. And he is a nice dentist. And he looks at my tooth. And you know what he says? I'm really sorry you've had to live with this. We can get this fixed today. It's a 30-minute procedure. <laughs> and he, 
He just wanted to fix the problem. He didn't want to shame me. It wasn't embarrassing. He did the job he was created to do. So now Jesus, right? We like build this story in our head. He's going to be ashamed of us. He's going to be angry at us. He's going to judge us. You could have come, you know, mock us. And yet every time that Jesus interacts with the disciples, after he's resurrected, it's kind. It's gentle. He seeks to restore each and every one of them. And as I come to the close of this message, I want to highlight what did happen to Peter and Thomas. Well, they get restored, and then they go out. Thomas ends up in India, right? And in the East, preaching the good news, suffering there for the sake of the gospel. And Peter, Peter does die a brutal death for the sake of the gospel. He becomes the head of the church. And this like brazen, brash type of guy becomes this humble servant that gets it. You're not too far gone. You're not too old. You're not too young. You're not unprepared. The best thing we can share is our testimony. Not, well, God, in you know, theologically, here, is that really how most people are saved? No. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the thing that Jesus did, but then that second part, and the word of our testimony. Your testimony matters. Run to him. Follow him. I think the question isn't, what if they didn't go, listen to this. I think the bigger question is, what if you don't go? What if you don't go? We see what happens because they go, so what if you don't go? Because now it's your church. You're here. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. It's our responsibility. What if the church doesn't shine? What if it doesn't? What if we don't do the thing we were called to do? What if we don't go? You're called to go. You're called to make disciples. You're called to be a light in this world. And even if you have doubt, I mean, I could have gone through. We didn't have time, obviously, but each one of the disciples, there was a reason that held them back initially from going. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's a shame like Peter. Maybe it's doubt like Thomas. Maybe it's religion that has wrapped you up and sin and you go, I'm too far gone. No, run to Jesus. You want to be set free? Maybe yours is the greatest testimony of all and this enemy is holding you back so hard because he's so terrified with what God can do with your testimony. Those in this room with your testimony. I'm talking to a people, this isn't a generic message. This is for you. 
This is for you. And Mimi, I felt like this. Mimi, you're young. And there is an attack on your generation. There is a ploy from the enemy to get you to stop just like there was on ours. But my gosh, is the enemy pushing hard right now on this generation. And I think it's because maybe this generation is going to be the most steadfast for him. The one that runs harder. The one that runs further. The one that is unashamed of the gospel. And it is our responsibility for those who are are before them is to lift them up and to encourage them and to remind them, you can do this. Jesus looked his disciples in the eyes and I know I'm going long right now, but church, I feel this. You can do this. You can do this. Do not stand back. Do not fall back. Do not allow the enemy for whatever reason that it is that he has found a foothold in to push you back from following the call, from following and running after the king. Do not allow it anymore. May you run hard and fast and strong. May you throw off all of the shame that the enemy has held up in your face. May you rip it down today. May you find the king and lock eyes on him. And he is saying, do not worry. I am with you always. To the ends of the earth, church, he is with us. And why does he say to the ends of the earth? Because he's called you to the ends of the earth. He has called the church to the ends of the earth, to every corner, to every nook, to every cranny. We are called to be unashamed gospel tellers. Run your race, however that looks and however he's called you, run your race. Run your race. So Father, right now, I'm gonna do this really quick. I feel like maybe you feel a call to ministry on your life, like a specific call to ministry. And it doesn't matter your age. Maybe he called you at 15 and you've spent the last 40 years doing something else. Or maybe you're young or maybe you've messed up. I don't know. But if you feel called to ministry, I think there's a real attack on that right now. Like those who wanna step out into full-time gospel sharing ministry, whether that be a pastor or a missionary or a counselor or whatever it is. Would you raise your hand? Yeah, all over this room. He wants to restore you. He's calling out to you. So Father, right now in the name of Jesus, I just pray, God, for a refreshing wind that would come and blow through your people, that would come and reignite that thing that you called them with before, no matter the age, no matter the the weight that they have carried, no matter the past. He calls the unqualified. 
Church, may we be a church that rises up. May Jubilee be that city on a hill shining bright. That we know we're called and we know we're called to run. We just thank you for that, Jesus. And we lift you up right now in the name of Jesus. I celebrate what you have done. In your name, amen.